Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. Today we're trying to something a little different, and I think this will be what we do moving forward. We got some feedback that it would be helpful to listeners that if we started to introduce a little bit of the show at the beginning in more of a discussion fashion rather than a monologue. Our guest today is going to be Connor Eats Pants, who is a highly successful YouTube and Twitch streamer. Connor has amassed a bunch of followers after being involved in the SMP community, which is the survival multiplayer. You'll hear that come up a few times on the show, the survival multiplayer community for Minecraft, but he's decided to branch out into variety streaming more broadly. But before so, I wanted to bring on Prime from my team to discuss sort of what else is going on in gaming, catch you up on very quickly and, and the rest of it before we get into our interview with Connor. So Prime, how you doing? I'm all right. Just staying caffeinated, doing my thing, trying to figure out what G4 is thinking, just in general. Yeah, we can touch on that one first. We wanted to talk a little bit about G4 TV. For those who are unfamiliar, G4 is a Comcast, NBC, Universal-owned gaming channel that existed mostly, was very successful in the early 2000s and into the 2010s. And shut down in 2014, it came back in 2021, and as I know Prime has a lot of opinions on, it basically relaunched a bunch of its programming that was successful in the aughts, and thought that it may work this time around. And uh, on Sunday night, uh, there was a company-wide memo sent out by Comcast Spectacore CEO Dave Scott, saying that the company would be shuttering its entire division for G4, and that means that somewhere roughly 150 to 200 employees would be being let go bunch of creators out on their ass so yeah Prem, what are your your thoughts on this situation before we get into the thoughts also the number of people that were mid contract negotiations or just had no idea that this was coming that were fully expecting that they still had work at least until the end of the year that's bad dude because of the the kind of pedigree of g4 i think it it sends a really bad signal to outside investors, outside companies who who might be saying like, okay, gaming's a space we want to get into. How can we how can we get in in a way that that makes sense? They'll see these media companies doing relatively like basic stuff failing. And it's it it just it's not a good look for for gaming in general. Yeah, I think part of the problem and and there too like from my reporting, none of the actual G4 top brass were expecting this to happen. You know, there were layoffs there a little bit more than a month ago and there was an expectation for as I understand that with the layoffs there would be given a little bit more runway to get things right. And I would say towards the end of G4 at least, I think they were kind of headed a little bit in the right direction. However, I think sort of the business model that they had made was maybe not correct, but the actual content seemed like it was it was pivoting correctly, meaning they went from sort of these review shows like X-Play and some of the other gaming culture shows like Attack of the Show, and they moved into influencer shows. They had a game show called The Price is Right with Austin Show, who's a very popular influencer, no, who's no, known was, uh, for kind guess, of doing... Guess that price, because if they had used The Price is Right, they would have immediately been sued. Oh, guess that price, sorry. Um, <laughs> that it was, uh, it was a guest-driven show that had the likes of Love of Ogren and Amaranth and Cutie Cinderella, Hassan Piker, your, yeah. people listening to this are probably familiar with those names, but a lot of the biggest streamers from Twitch and YouTube 
And the show was doing pretty well in live. It was not doing so well in VOD uh, in terms of, of viewership. Yeah. And it was also being put awful. on a channel that like looked like no one had been able to run a YouTube channel ever before. Like it, it yeah. just very significant SEO and thumbnail issues. But also they had launched another one called Hey Donna, which was a sort of parody life advice call-in show hosted by Will Neff, who's also a very big influencer. And I, I didn't really understand the appeal of it, but I respect yeah. kind of what it was. It was sort of Will Neff dressing up as a woman and this sort of and giving this sort of like middle-aged life advice. It, it really interesting sort of product. But it seems like they were pivoting towards something that might work, but it just didn't. See, I as much as I think that there's there's an appeal for that content, I don't actually think that it works in the long term. There there is still an appeal for for the attack of the show X play type content, but realistically those things worked in the the mid 2000s because we didn't have the internet as we have it now. Like realistically our our kind of modern idea of the internet is something that's very much of the last 10 to 15 years. But G4 existed before that and so that was the place that we can go to get tech reviews, game reviews, like internet culture content, all of that all in one and it it made sense back then because like in the, in the mid 2000s I had dial up I couldn't I couldn't stream videos. I couldn't watch YouTube. And so I I think about it now and I'm just like, if you're gonna do X play, if you're gonna do Attack of the Show, you're gonna have to innovate. And it's very clear to me that they didn't. Like Attack of the Show was just a combination of low effort tech reviews and Tosh.0 for for TikTok. But we have that. It's called TikTok. <laughs> like yeah. That's what TikTok is for. It's it's meant for discovery. And so all of those videos that they shared are things that millions upon millions of people have seen, let alone the 800, 900 that are watching live and the 500 or so that watch the VOD. In terms of their, their kind of more modern content, I think the issue that I saw, especially with both Hey Donna and Guess That Price, is that they are entirely banking on the show creating those those viral moments but then all the space between those viral moments is bad it's really yeah. really cringe yeah. it it it's just based on like a bunch of people having awkward interactions but then waiting for those like little nuggets of of viral content that they can push which were few and far between frankly and they had very limited appeal because they were being shared first and foremost by those creators and not by the company yeah, I think the other part, too, and we'll wrap this up uh, about G4 and, and talk about Amaranth because we need to. But the the biggest thing is that this was a company investing millions of dollars in overhead. They had built this massive studio in Los Angeles. And for what exactly? Right. They're really the, their only main source of revenue, from my understanding, was a, they were getting a portion of the TV rights package that NBC Universal gets because they are an NBC Universal company. They were on linear television. And so. For anyone who had a subscription to, you know, DirecTV, Dish Network, any of the others that carried G4, G4 was getting a cut of those dollars for the that package. But that was really the only big appeal, I think. So, yeah, it, it just economically didn't make much sense. I'm just surprised it only lasted about a year. Yeah, I I assumed it would last a little longer. Um, I assumed that that this little pivot would. I mean, I thought it would bring a lot more viewers. It was always really weird to me to see something with like Will Neff and Hassan and all these other huge content creators getting maybe on a good day 2000 views 
where Hassan doing his normal daily stream can pull 40,000. At that point, it was it was very clear to me that something is horribly wrong. Yeah, 100%. So let's dive into Amaranth for a little bit. For those unfamiliar, Amaranth is the top most watched female streamer on all of Twitch. She is also the one of the highest earning creators on OnlyFans. She posted in June that she had earned $33 million on the website over the, her lifespan on, on it. Her content centers on Twitch around sort of chatting with viewers, entertaining viewers, oftentimes in or near a pool or in a hot tub inside of her house. And she uses that as a sort of pipeline to get people to her OnlyFans or Fansly accounts where she does nude and lewd content. And on Sunday morning slash Saturday evening, she had a live stream in which she revealed that she has a husband that not many people knew about before and accused her husband of emotional abuse and pushing her to be a part of this content world that she's not even interested in creating. It went, it got to the point where he was trying to call her and she would not answer while live on stream. And he was sending text messages, which she showed on camera that include threatening to kill her dogs. Uh, she was, he was also threatening to like blow a bunch of their money and the millions of dollars that she had helped earn. And it got to a point where she went dark on Sunday and there was a ton of valid concern for her well-being. Midday on Monday, she went live again, but then after her go live or like her starting soon screen played for a little bit, a text started scrolling across the screen that said that the police had arrived and then the stream got cut. Monday evening, late into the evening, she came back again for the first time and she said that her and her husband are separated, that he is seeking mental health help and that she is seeking legal and emotional help for her words. I think one of the things that really stuck with me is she said a quote that I don't have to wear cleavage every day. I can wear clothes. She went on to say, I can't believe how many people gave a shit. for years. It felt that everyone was against me for the type of content that I didn't even want to stream. And I think that there's been a larger discussion around sex work and what most people have dubbed sort of e-pimping as well and I, I think that there's a really valid discussion here i'm glad that amaranth is okay but more broadly it's pretty heartbreaking to see that one of the top creators on twitch and OnlyFans, in a way that it was all just kind of a facade that wasn't even really what she wanted to do yeah man i i mean i feel like amaranth has been something of a household name for for gaming for so long at this point that everything that's happened in the last few days it it makes me reconsider a lot of what she's done in the past like i at this point i'm not i'm really not sure um if if she was even the person who wanted to 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 pivot into more nude content because she she used to only do like implied nudes kind of more artful artful content and and she's pivoted pretty heavily in the last like year or so to more explicit content and yep. i yeah I, I just don't know if 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 that's really her decision i mean it's a really it's a really hard topic to talk about just because i'm i'm sure that we have listeners that have dealt with abuse and, and understand how gripping it can be 
Yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss of words just because at this point I'm just not sure what, what her decisions were and when she kind of stopped having that autonomy. Yeah, I think the other part that really struck me is, you know, she, someone published her marriage license from Harris County, Texas, which is where she yep. is from originally. She's been married for seven years, meaning that she was married at 21. She was married before her fame, before her success, before her wealth, because originally she was a variety streamer who liked to do cosplay and other things mm -hmm. as well. And then again, sort of the line started, it kept going further and further, as you mentioned, until it reached the point of doing that sexually explicit content on OnlyFans. And I think that more broadly, it just... It's something we talk about with a lot of influencers on this show, how fame and wealth changes the dynamics in your life. And that's one of the biggest things I thought about through all of this is, you know, I'm sure she saw some modicum of success. And to your point, like there was, if the manipulation, as she alleged, is accurate, then there's probably a line there that she just kept being pushed to that made her uncomfortable. Yeah. I can't help but feel, you know, watching her stream last night, it looked like someone who just felt this massive sense of relief that she had finally been separated from it. Yeah, and and obviously we we want nothing but the best for her, and we want her to make to make sure that she's safe. But like, she has made an immense amount of money doing what she does, and she like was it last year that she bought a gas station, and that was that was a huge that was huge news. By any chance, did you see the the like divorce stipulations? No, she didn't really talk about them in in full detail yet. Okay, so the divorce stipulations that I saw from the video was like, if they get divorced, she gets a million, he gets the rest. He also gets, in perpetuity, 10% of all of her revenue from OnlyFans and Fansly. Mm. It sounded like she may not do that content altogether, by the way. Like, she, yeah. she was pretty... She was pretty expressive in the sense that, like, she doesn't want... That she really never wanted to do that content more broadly, and so... I'm curious what the second arc of Amaranth is, but when she comes back, I think that's the most intriguing thing is what, what does she do now? She says she's taking some time off, but what does she do when she comes back and yeah. is back into the swing of things and has had some time to mentally decompress? You know, it, it's, it got to a point where she had been profiled uh, both by Vice and the New York Times for what she does. And mm -hmm. I think that reaching that point when something that, clearly made her uncomfortable like that the, that's it's hard to pivot away from that but i, I do wish her the best in doing so that, that's sure. what she wants to do so so we'll wrap there thank thank you guys we're going to start doing this a little bit more and we're going to be bringing on sort of a permanent co-host slash producer to do this with me but thank you prime for doing so yeah of course so we'll now introduce our interview with connor eats pants it's a good one connor is he's kind of a shy dude but i i loved listening to him open up and and kind of break out of that shell a little bit into the interview and, and start writing his own vibe which was really fun it was, it was a good time so uh you guys will enjoy it and now for our interview with connor eats pants connor how you doing thank you for joining, joining the I'm show doing good thank you for having me You've quite the pedigree through ESPN and stuff. So I'm excited. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do an extensive amount of research when I invite people on. And I think I, I haven't seen too many podcasts with you on them. Like, how is this like a recurring thing? I haven't, at least serious. I don't know. I saw the thing you did with Schlatt, but. Yeah, I'm yeah. not on too many podcasts. I feel like I 
do a fine job. I'm just not always asked, I guess. Or when I do, it's like a more comedic thing and the, or like, or like I'm in person and then like, I feel really awkward. So <laughs> usually, uh, uh, I'm not on too many, but this is nice. Yeah, for sure. Give us the, give us the origin story of your career, like quickly or, you know, as quickly as you want to, just because, you know, I know I discovered your content some time ago. Yeah. I, I found sort of all the people that were doing a lot of content with Ludwig years ago, like 2018, 2019, et cetera. And I know that you were, and I want to dive into this a little bit later, but I know you were on one of the early Twitch Jeopardies with him, obviously, which became the inspiration for Mogul Money Live. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what, what's the origin story here? How did you get into this, this career? I mean, I was on YouTube, like within a year of it starting when I was like eight, back in like 2007, I did like, just like Pokemon Wi-Fi battle videos. I got like my mom's camcorder record Pokemon battles and then try to like commentate over it and post it online. I did stuff like that forever when I was a kid, did like sketch videos with friends. And then I started doing like more like comedy YouTube videos, probably around like 2013, 2014, just like anything I'd find funny. I tried to make it into a video similar to like donkey style almost was a big inspiration to me at the time. And then 2016, I finally got a computer that could live stream. And so I did my first actual stream on Pokemon tournament when it came out on the Wii U. And then from there, I just kind of kept streaming pretty much every day, built up viewers slowly and just enjoyed it. And yeah, that's pretty much how I got my start. What was the sort of moment of the pivoting away from being what you would consider to be a hobby, something you did on the side to it being like an actual viable career path for you? I guess like once I joined like the SMP Live Minecraft server with Schlatt and them. That put a lot more eyes on me than I otherwise would have gotten. And then suddenly, like, viewers just started increasing, um, got more attention on my name and stuff, met more people. And then it just kind of all skyrocketed from there. But even then, though, like, when you get that kind of success, it doesn't always last forever. So I was always pretty mindful to, like, even at the time when the Minecraft stuff was super huge, to always kind of do variety every day and to, like, make sure, like, the new viewers understand like what I actually do and what I enjoy and that ended up paying off in the long run. Yeah. I want to ask about that more broadly. I want to do want to cover some of the SMP stuff that you've done, both SMP live and the dream SMP stuff more broadly. And then I want to kind of pivot into what you're doing now, more variety content and where you've, you've kind of changed what you're doing more broadly. You know, what's really interesting to me about Minecraft content is, and you'll remember this as someone who viewed YouTube back sort of in its early days is like that game there there are really to me two games that are very synonymous with youtube and youtube content and that is call of duty was the first and i think that call of duty in the like late aughts early 2010s really like shot off to the moon we had hutch on the podcast like a few weeks ago oh obviously used to be the biggest youtuber on all or biggest gamer on all of youtube in terms of creators and so obviously like inspired a whole bunch of us myself included but then Minecraft became a huge part of that as well. And I and I think my sort of take on this is that Minecraft allows, because it's so open world, because, you know, at least early on with Alpha, Beta, et cetera, it didn't really have any story elements to it. And they slowly incorporated those into what it is today. But because it was just so open world, you could do whatever. I remember a lot of the successful creators back then in the early 2010s building those storylines, which is functionally the foundation for a lot of these SMP servers as well, is that they create stories themselves, right? Like it's very much, it's role play based. Mm -hmm. And so when you started thinking about that portion of it, creating content around SMP Live and later Dream SMP, what 
what, how would you say, like, what was your inspiration for storytelling more broadly and how you created those stories with, with one another? I mean, at least for me, it was almost entirely always improv. I never really planned too much in regards to what I would do on stuff. I enjoyed doing improv in like middle school. And so it, it just kind of the skills translated over because especially when we were doing most of that stuff live, it, it pretty much has to be improvised right. and kind of just go with the flow. whatever. And for me and Shalat specifically, whatever was funny. I think with like Dream S&P stuff, they take it a bit more seriously and plan that out a little bit more than I ever cared for, at least. Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it was primarily improv. And I, I think the reason the storytelling works so well in Minecraft is because in the day, it's just a sandbox game. You can do whatever you need or want to in it, especially early on when Minecraft first came out. I remember like seeing like, Seenanders accidentally burned down his house and it's like, oh, well, that yeah. was cool. <laughs> he He made that structure in the game that's his home, that's where he's living in, and now it's gone and it's... So the rest of this world, and, and there was something about that in that game that no other game had at the time that, that made it super interesting. I think it's like the same draw, like to use like a buzzword that people now that don't know much about games think about like the metaverse and stuff of just like a creation of like your own space and that you can manipulate. I think Minecraft kind of scratched that itch for people to actually play games like a decade ago. Are you like generally a big fan of any other forms of media in terms of like movies, television, music, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I, I like all things entertainment, I guess I'd say. I like movies, TV. I wouldn't say that like I consume it as much as I do video games mainly, partly because it's my job, but also because it's just my primary hobby. But no, I mean, I, especially when I was in middle and high school, I thought I wanted to do film for a job. And so I, I liked movies a ton. So in terms of asking sort of that other question I asked a little bit ago through a different lens, was there any sort of that form of entertainment that sort of inspired you to like kind of hone your skills? Because that's one thing I think when I talk to a lot of creators, like it's it's almost passive, right? Like whatever you're really interested in does influence the way that you create your work, even if it's not a one-to-one -one direct corollary, you know, streaming, YouTube content creation is not the same as television and film, but there is lessons that you can draw from that. Is there like any particular shows, et cetera, that or films that like really inspired you in that sort of way that you think you drew from ultimately? I don't know. I'm not really sure if I drew from anything when it comes to streaming or content creation. I think that like content creation as a whole, especially starting on YouTube and, and like knowing the editing process and how to like make a joke land here or there uh, helped a ton when it came to streaming and stuff too, because it just clicks more in your head and it, you understand it better and the timing and stuff. But, but that's primarily streaming. In terms of like other media influence, I don't think it affects streaming too much unless like it's some pre-produced project. Like when I do like, I haven't done it in like two years, but the Connor Eats Pansies was like a, a parody award show I, I did. And so a lot of that was like, the planning and execution of that was much more similar to how I imagined like making films would go. And, and there's still projects that I have ideas for and stuff that incorporate some of that. But I would say for the most part in terms of like, Entertainment influence is what I do. I mean, watching other streamers, I think mainly is, is a big thing, um, which streamers I enjoy. And I would enjoy very different kinds, like very chill ones that are just kind of lightly talking to chat or like high viewer, high energy ones. And I think understanding what makes each part of Twitch and live streaming sort of function is pretty important if you want to do your own thing. You know, I think there was this moment with this has always existed with YouTube, but it's changed with streaming, I feel like, a little bit. The people that were really popular on Twitch once upon a time, seven years ago, eight years ago, were the people that were best at whatever they were doing. Skill was really the most important measure of, of entertainment. So, like, the high-viewed guys that were on Twitch back at the time were, like, I'm a cutie pie, Night Blue, like, Gosu, these, like, high-level, you know, Master Challenger, ULO, League of Legends players were, like, the top dogs on the platform. 
And I think there's been a little bit more of a shift and I'm sure it correlates with the audience and what the audience is interested in too, a younger audience, et cetera, to be where entertainment in whatever presentation form that is, is way more important than the skill, right? And I think that that's changed over time with people like Ninja. Like Ninja is, is a, or was a skilled Fortnite player, is a skilled Fortnite player, but he's not a Fortnite pro. You put him up against sort of like top dogs in the game and he gets chewed up and spit out, but he, he made it entertaining to go along that ride with him. And I think that a lot of other streamers have done that now to the point where games is not even inherently a, a necessary part of all that right like just chatting is such a huge category on the website and and so the gaming is is almost irrelevant more broadly all that to say i want to ask about that a little bit from your perspective because obviously you still do a lot of game content but like a lot of folks you you still sometimes just do that just chatting content as well how have you how have you found that balance of like what's relevant and also what is entertaining to your audience especially when you have so many different games to juggle it's not easy especially i think it becomes a lot more difficult once you get larger because like there's a lot more input to uh sort of levy and to think is this the right thing to do or not is this entertaining um it it, i wouldn't say it gets any easier i think when you mentioned the sort of the old guard of twitch being more gameplay focused versus the new stuff i think that's definitely true but at the end of the day i think mainly that like if you're good at a game and you're a streamer you're you're gonna get views but like you see that with really good valorant players now that they're getting great viewership but i think the correlation between like higher viewership and more entertaining streams is more so that the viewers just stick around more because eventually you're never going to be the best at a game or people are going to grow out of that game. Whereas a personality entertainment wise that sticks around people longer. So uh, I think if you're really good at a game, that's a great way to skyrocket in viewership and to get high up there. But again, I think that that's only half the puzzle to making a career out of streaming in terms of longevity. Um, Yeah. You know, the best the best entertainers are people who take a piece of them and they amplify that up, right? Like I think of I think of XQC, right? He he's like chief among that when I make that statement. You know, I knew XQC is sort of his first year of being an Overwatch professional. And he is if you're ever around him in person, and I think this has changed, but was very reserved, kind of shy no, person he is, yeah. in person, but then on stream, just extremely, right? But like, that's him. He's not faking that. That's right. just a, person, a part of him that he sort of just blows up and makes into this. I mean, it is functionally a character, even if it's not fake. And so I want to ask you, like, was there a part of you that you found identified that you said, like, this is this, but then I kind of just have to scale it at scale, whether that be your humor or comedy or whatever it might be? Uh, for me, it was always that like, I mean, the reason I started streaming and had it as a creative outlet in the first place is because I was so like anxious in school and stuff that I didn't really feel like I had an outlet to be me. So when I would stream and I could kind of just not care about how I'm perceived and stuff, it w- made it super easy to sort of get into that state and to be the kind of creator I wanted to be. Again, I think it's gotten more difficult now that I'm more in like the public eye and I have to think about a lot more things. I mean, I think that goes for pretty much every streamer too, once they get to that sort part of their career. But yeah, I mean, as you mentioned with XQC, he, he is genuinely himself just amplified. And I think that's how it is for pretty much every streamer that I've met. I mean, for what it's worth, every pretty much every streamer that I know and have met personally is very genuine, nice person because it's pretty hard to fake being likable and, and engaging on stream, at least when you're live as often yeah. as you are. Of course, things sip to the cracks sometimes, but I, I still think that's part of the genuineness of it is that it's, it's pretty hard to fake. Well, that's the other part you were talking about, like having to think about more broadly the way that you act, the way that you behave, et cetera. I think that that is 
that social responsibility is something we've talked about a lot on this show with a lot of creators. And I think it's, it's different when you have another profession, you become a creator. So two people who have been on this show before are Stan's and Atrioc, and they both talked about that, right? Because they worked in professional settings where accountability was really relevant and couldn't just act any sort of way right before they became, you know, large creators and among themselves. And so, you know, I think something that I'm constantly talking to sort of on the younger side of things, the the entertainers who've always been that way since, you know, they were entertainers or streamers or YouTubers straight out the gate. And then that was their professional career. That that accountability is is hard, right? Because you're like, you're constantly in the public eye. So those like being burned because you did something wrong is very public. It's a it's a public execution, frankly. And it's really tough. Like have you have you dealt with some of that too? Like making some of those mistakes and having to kind of eat it even in the public face? I haven't really made any like mistake that I think is like super like, man, I can't believe that I did that. And now it's in the public eye. Most of the time <laughs> dealing with like a, a more of Minecraft into the community, I think there's things that get a bit overblown and sort of blown out of proportion amongst that community. I mean, at the end of the day, that audience isn't really the people that watch me. So I never really care too much. But when you see like social media blowing up about things that are just absurd and annoying, it definitely does get to you. And I wouldn't be surprised that that's part of, you know, why I've been a bit more uh, cautious and reserved as of late in regards to it all. Because I think it does get to you to an extent, especially when your face is out there and your name's out there and, and stuff like that. It it affects you even if you don't want it to. Yeah, it's hard. It's it's a balance. Like, I'm I'm a little bit older than you and not that much older than you. And, like, you know, I started my job at ESPN at 19 years old and, like, kind of just ate some shit along the yeah. way in terms of just being a public figure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Not anything like, again, nothing you can't come back from, but also just like being that young, it's like, okay, I made like what is a very understandable 19 year old, 20 year old mistake. And now I just got to live. Yeah. I mean, our brains really just aren't built for streaming or public figure facing in general. It's, it's a super weird experience to go through because 50 years ago you could make a mistake and then, you know, people move on and it's not that big of a deal. But now, you know. You're online, you do something, and suddenly that sits with you for a long time. Yeah. I think it, in its best case, it can dissuade sort of very egregious behavior, whatever that might be. Well, for sure, But yeah. if it's worse, it can certainly blow up, even the, you know, something taken out of context, the smallest bit, right? It's it's kind of tough. Right. It's a weird balance to strike. Yeah. Um, and that actually kind of segues into a little bit of what I wanted to talk about. You know, you attended TwitchCon a couple of weeks ago. And we had Nathan Grayson from the Washington Post on the show last week who also attended and he's covered Twitch forever. He's writing a book right now where he's embedding with Ludwig and Co-Carnage and a bunch of other Hassan and a bunch of other top creators, like basically like living with them for several weeks as they do what they do and writing about it every single day and, you know, writing sort of the first book on live streaming, at least to my knowledge, of, of from the eyes of a creator. And so, one, I'm really interested to read that, but his sort of take and I, and I could see this just from I didn't go but I could see this online and and sort of reaffirmed by his in-person experience was this felt like it was the first TwitchCon that was like amped up to be like truly a fan convention like celebrity culture etc like at its heights right and and that happened a little bit in 2019 and 2018 yeah not really though not not to the levels it was this time like nathan was like yeah 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 i i think twitchcon has always had a very weird draw of being like come here if you're a streamer to learn how to stream and it's like you're not gonna honestly i really don't think you're gonna get anything out of those panels or workshops that you can't get from home from a youtube guide or something and even the connections that are made just feel very like 
what's the word, um, contrived and not, not genuine and, and stuff, I think, from a small streamer perspective. But yeah, definitely this year, being in a position that I'm in now, it, it felt very, um, you know, ce- celebrity focused on Twitch. I, I, I think in 2019, I saw more like average viewers of mine that I recognize names of than I did this year even. Like, I mean, I did, don't get me wrong, like meeting fans and like meeting great stuff is nice, but like a, a lot of those fans I could tell were primarily like Minecraft fans who like knew my name and stuff, which is fine and great. And they're very kind, but like in terms of seeing like actual regular viewers at TwitchCon, it's like, I, not really. That, that wasn't really what, what I saw. It was definitely more like people that are there for like streamer culture and are super into that, mm-hmm. which made for a, a bit of a different crowd than, than what I remember. What's interesting about that specifically is that I think part of that changed during the pandemic, and it's something we talked about on the show a lot, is that, you know, Twitch's numbers ballooned during the pandemic, which makes sense. Uh, kind of every form of entertainment did. But I think that it activated it activated an audience who have never really been engaged with other forms of entertainment, that this is their first form of entertainment, YouTube and Twitch, and specifically gaming content being a part of that because they're younger, right? Like, a lot of the people that started watching for 3x 4x the amount of netflix during the pandemic that hadn't been before they were probably a little bit older and they had consumed netflix content etc before whereas this was activating this like core audience who is growing up right and now they are more online etc just by nature of being inside which is right it's interesting to see that now become an event i think there was a little bit of that at vidcon but i think twitchcom was one of those first like holy yeah crap. Vid- vidcon was like that too vidcon was the same but with like tiktok TikTok was just so present at VidCon. It was crazy. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. I'm very fascinated by how that will continue at, at a lot of these conventions. Did you have any like weird interactions of like that sort of para- stepping the parasocial line in any sort of way? Because I've talked to a couple streamers who definitely have uh, at TwitchCon. There was like one guy kind of meet and greet and was like genuinely like asking me if he could um like come with me to like the partner lounge and like the VIP. And I'm like, no, like I don't know you. He's like, oh, come on. Like, who are, and he, like, gave me, like, his business card, and I'm like, okay, no, I'm not going to, this is strange. But for the most part, most interactions were fine. Again, mo- mostly kids that are just as nervous as me, if not more, <laughs> to, to kind of be in public and stuff. So it was, it, most people were really sweet. You know, one of the, and I know you're not involved in the Dream S&P stuff as much anymore, but the Dream S&P stuff was, like, the, one of the highlight displays of this convention uh, in particular. I mean, Nathan, when he was on the show, said he was lucky to have gotten into their panel because there's like the room was way too small to hold everybody that was interested. Oh my in God. It. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't show you like how well prepared it seems like Twitch is for stuff. I don't know what will. I mean, they should have known that we've been saying it forever for months after the VidCon panel, which I was a part of, I was telling, it's like, this is going to be crazy. This is going to be a problem. And they get like a small room for the, for the panel. It's like, I don't know what they're doing. It just made no sense. And like, everybody was pretty upset about them doing that. It made no sense to me. I mean, they knew the majority of the audience there was honestly there for them. You could tell just by the crowd. So it was, uh, you know, it was surprising they didn't prepare for that. Yeah. And what's even more interesting about that to me is that those guys, the the Dream S&P group, aren't necessarily primarily Twitch creators. Like they, some of them do stream on Twitch, but it's not. If you had to measure, like, spend X percent on this amount of time on this content on this website, right? Like, I would way skew them closer to YouTube than I would Twitch. Like, it, it is way more of their content. And so for that, them to be such a big draw at a convention for Twitch was not surprising because they are big names. They're super relevant. But they're not, they're not Twitch 
streamers at at their core. I I think so. I agree to an extent. I think that YouTube definitely gives them a more broad appeal. But I think that the success of the Minecraft stuff and the community around it specifically is very much correlated to to being on Twitch. Um, I think that the live aspect and like being a part of like the show, being able to like live tweet it with like your Minecraft friends online and like being involved in the chat and a bit of a community aspect of it really is what made that community as big as it is now. Because, you know, we had Minecraft stuff way back when, but like it's kind of hard to find a community based around just like watching a Captain Sparkles video. Like you have the comment section and then what? On Twitch, you have chatters. You can, you know, potentially meet an acquaintance there. Streamers have Discord servers that you could automatically join to if you're subbed. From there, you know, you follow people on Twitter and then you have Twitter communities and all of that sort of, I think, goes hand in hand with Twitch's community making aspect, which is why that that does so well and becomes such a big facet of, I would say, the Minecraft community. Yeah. And to follow up on that, what what do you think has been, and they're all unique, every single one of the people involved in that community is as creators are very unique individuals. I think there's certain personality draws. Each of them, there's a reason someone likes Stream, there's a reason someone likes Carl, et cetera differently from one another they're differentiated but what do you think why do you think their content and by extension yours when you were sort of working on partaking in that more actively what do you think the biggest draw was to be like a, a fan of that content creating that con- or you know consuming that content of, of the dream SP server honestly I'm, I'm not i'm not sure it's a very different demographic to what i primarily appeal to or no, which is mainly, I think, teen girls are really into it. I, again, I think the community aspect is a big thing, a big part of it, especially with the pandemic. That was a lot of kids were online. And so that became kind of the primary outlet for social and interaction and for entertainment. And, you know, in terms of like why the different creators are, are popular, I, I think the collaboration between everyone is a big part of it. They're very mindful of not going live at the same time as each other. The top people there, they're all very much coordinated in that regard which I personally would hate. Like I would hate having to organize my stuff around others, but it, it works very well for them. Um, and they're very, very smart about it. And it's obviously paid off. Well, that seems like a trend we're just saying in content creation more broadly, right? Like it's, it, you know, you think about, I, I've done a lot of reporting on YouTube's more recent signings of creators and streamers. And it's very clear that they like to sign in certain bubbles, right? So they're signing like the people that I kind of consider the like OTV Ludwig circle of friends, right? Like with Lud himself and also people like Fusely and others, Lily Pichu, Myth, et cetera. Like these people are constantly in one another's content. And then the sort of more broad like Ninja, even though himself is not a YouTube exclusive creator, but his circle of friends, Courage, Dr. Lupo, you know, Tim the Tabman, et cetera, Dr. Disrespect, who doesn't have a deal with YouTube, but is only on YouTube nowadays yeah. as a live creator. You know, it's it's very clear that the answer to making everybody sort of long-term successful is to be a part of one another's content more broadly. Yeah, collaboration is super important, I think. I'm always mindful to not let myself get stuck in a box because, again, I think it's part of something that would cause a lot of anxiety for me if it doesn't already. I don't want to be worried about factors like that uh, for the most part, so I try not to think about it too much. But but at the same time, I, I guess I do think about it because I'm pretty mindful of of that fact. So I always be sure to like, collaborate with different people or when I do collaborate, I'm always intentional about it being like something special. I don't collaborate every stream. In fact, I collaborate pretty rarely on my own stream. I'll join other people's stuff, but but for me and my own content, I, I stick I try to stick to my own lane for it. Yeah. In that sense, does it feel like you can't flip the switch off 
Like what, what is the pressure to be consistent with your content? Because yeah, I mean, um, it's maybe you can like maybe, yeah. The, the pressure's there for sure, especially lately. I haven't been doing as much or, or I've at least felt like I haven't been doing as much as I should. So I'm certainly pretty hard on myself for that. But at the same time, I think that the content's only good if like the person has the energy to do it or the desire to, if, if they're forcing it, it's almost never good. I've never had a good stream or something I'm proud of where I feel like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to anyways, even for like a sponsor, like at least the sponsor, there's like an incentive of like, okay, this is something different, not even money wise, but like this is something unique from what I've been doing and you know, money's there, so I'll do it. And then uh, that gives me a bit of motivation. But, but in terms of like content as a whole, I mean, uh, when you do variety, it feels like there's so many options that there's almost no right option <laughs> that you don't really know what to do or what exactly is going to work, how this content will work on stream versus how that will do in a video versus how to make sure that video is good, the title and thumbnail and the, everything about that is a factor that goes into stuff now. But it, again, you also get pretty lucky when you're in my position where I have a pretty good security blanket of anything that I do is successful enough that my viewer base will watch it and enjoy it. That, that is rather reassuring. I forgot what the original question was, but I kind of went off on a tangent. No, I, I was, I think that answers it pretty well. I was talking about like sort of the pressure of like not to flick the switch off, right? Like, cause I think that's something that when you're in the moment, you're creating that content so regularly, it's really easy to get caught up in like just one more content piece, one more content piece, whatever it may be. And then like, before you know it, you're like super burnt out yeah. and you just can't, you know, like you can't just step away for yourself. But that is what digital media and new media really lends itself to. It is that always on content creation. And I think we see that across YouTube, Twitch, TikTok. It doesn't matter the medium. Yeah, I, I think it almost becomes easier to do once you're kind of in that zone and doing it more often. Like I think for like XQC, for example, he's live almost all the time. It's more difficult for him to stop than to, than to do it at this point. So you just kind of got to lock yourself in a mode, I think. It's nothing more to it from what I can think of. Yeah. And the other thing too is there is like this part, and I think this is like every creator's dream, especially on YouTube, but uh, on the other mediums too, TikTok probably has this sort of functionality to it as well from a creation perspective is where like what you were just talking about doesn't really matter what you do. You're not playing to the algorithm anymore. You're not chasing the algorithm right. anymore. You are just like creating what you want to create and people will like it because they like you yeah. and they generally trust your judgment. And, and right? when it like comes to Twitch, the, it's like what algorithm, right? Like what sort of discoverability they even offer at this point? Still nothing. It's still like, you know, best you can hope for is that you're at the top of a directory of a game that people are looking at. And that's about all the discoverability options you have on Twitch. And, you know, we've given them plenty of ideas on things that they could do, but never really get implemented. So at this point, it's kind of like the only way to grow on Twitch if you're not there already is to use outside platforms and such. Pretty much always been that way, but especially now. Yeah, it feels like something Nathan said last week and that we we had Zach Diaz, who's a former Twitch employee on the pod a few weeks ago. And something we've been talking about is like the the people who prop up on a tripod in front of their monitor or whatever, like right below their monitor, their phone, and they stream on TikTok and they're like, you want to watch me or, you know, do this sort of nine by 16 aspect ratio. If you want to watch the actual thing, go over to Twitch. And they just use I haven't it as like seen that. Yeah, that's feed crazy method. That's like a growing part of, <laughs> I mean, it's smart, right? Like, cause you're right. Like Twitch is the biggest problem with Twitch is now that it's, it's almost outgrown itself as a website, right? Like it is, it has the functional capability from like, it can handle the number of viewers. It can handle the surges and the spikes, but the discoverability portion of things you're right. Like it, it hasn't quite caught up to how many people are one on the website from a rousing perspective and two creating on the website. You know, there, how many creators exist on Twitch that just like sit 
at the bottom of that that totem pole, right? Like they're like they got like sub ten viewers. It's the majority of their audience, really. I, I think it, a majority of Twitch streamers are are there. Um, and I think I, I don't actually know the portion of the audience that's there, but it's a what I remember. It's a more sizable portion than I remember than I than I thought it'd be. That are watching like smaller streamers. Yeah, it, um, it feels too like it's yeah. it's like there are very few people that sit in that. We talked to Stannis about this a few weeks ago. Sit in that like middle ground of streamers too. It's like extremely top heavy, hundred you know eighty to hundred twenty thousand people watching XQC whenever he turns the button on, right? And then like ten people watching the little guy, and then there's very few people in that sort of like you know sub five thousand ish because that's probably the, the number that clicks over that like. You know, hundred to five thousand people. Like there, there are some streamers in that that window, but yeah. not as many I mean, as you as you. I, I think there might be more in that category than, than you may think, because I think that was primarily the the audience for TwitchCon before this hmm. time around. Um, and I, I still see a lot of like people with with seemingly that kind of average just bouncing between directories that that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Uh, so I, I think there is a bigger portion than maybe people realize. But that being said, I mean it's it's still a drop in the puddle compared to compared to some of the bigger names. So I want to ask more specifically about Twitch, the platform, and some of the changes. You know, I have been following this from behind the scenes. I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago called The Amazonification of Twitch, which is about sort of how the corporate backend is changing and how Twitch is kind of finally becoming a part of Amazon after being sort of left alone in its first five or six years of its acquisition. And what's changed with that is that, yeah. you know, uh, I think this was missed by a lot of people last year, but Twitch is finally a part of Amazon Global Entertainment, which is a new department that also includes Amazon Prime Video and Amazon Music and Audible and some of the other content pieces. Twitch was previously a part of AWS, their, the AWS library of or department. So it was kind of left alone because AWS made so much money. Twitch didn't make a lot of money. They offset, right? Like that's, that's how it functioned post-Amazon acquisition. Yeah. But... Now, we see some pretty stark changes about what's coming to Twitch. We saw the creator pay go down, 70-30 is reduced. Only like 5% of streamers even have 70-30 deals now. Like it was, used to be like 20%, like two or three years ago. It, it's reduced already, but it's going to reduce completely. And we've seen from watching the presentation that Amateur did at TwitchCon for the opening keynote, it seems like a lot of what they discuss is just engineering feats, like things that they're building for the website, not necessarily that community aspect of it anymore. It's a product. No, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I'll just tell you a story. I, I, I met the um, president of Twitch a couple months ago and when they visited Austin to meet some streamers and I got a one-on-one -on -one talk with them and I thought it was a good talk. And, you know, they told me that 7030 wouldn't go away because it was a question that I had. Obviously that wasn't the truth, which was a bit frustrating. Mm -hmm. But I proposed plenty of ideas, primarily the expansion of the clip system on Twitch, which I think is their most untapped potential that they have. You see plenty of streamers get popular and pretty much the talk of the website is entirely through clips shared on Reddit, albeit a very toxic subreddit live stream fail that's eating up friends' mental healths. But, you know, it's where a lot of the base of, of Twitch seems to be these days for discoverability. So, you know, proposing the idea of like, we need better clip features, better shareability, better ways to like, go on the website and like consume clips and they get recommended clips of streamers that you may like and stuff like that. Like that needs to be a priority or even like a, a TikTok like feed for clips on, on mobile and stuff like that. This ideas like that, that are just sort of like, eh, yeah, maybe we'll look into that. And then nothing came of it. And then when, you know, I talked to them at TwitchCon, 
I'm like, well, what's new coming to the website? And like their big, uh, the president's big pitch to me was the whole guest star feature. Yeah. Which is like, oh, you can now have some, another streamer just like there on the stream. And I'm like, I was like, well, why would I use this? I just said, I'm like, why would I, like, I have discord. Why, why would I need that? And they're like, oh, well, it's like, if you want to call up viewers and stuff, I'm like I'm use discord. And they're like, well, if someone does something bad, then you don't get banned because that's their channel, not yours. And I'm like, okay, like, no, I'm not using this. Like, this is so much resources towards a feature that nobody with a good stream setup is going to use because you can make a better viewer experience outside of Twitch's own built-in tools. And on top of that, most every single smart streamer is streaming to put that content elsewhere anyways. So if the VOD's not even going to save like that second cam, why would I... Why would I ever use that feature? Just a complete waste of resources. So, you know, it, it's, I think the team there, it's not the majority of the team's fault. It's more higher ups making extremely bad decisions. Uh, but, but it's frustrating because at the end of the day, I mean, I feel like with the right pitch to Amazon, you could have sold Twitch at a much, you could have had much better leeway at getting decisions made at Twitch than, than maybe that, that the higher ups did, did portray because I mean if you think about it Twitch the amount of watch time on Twitch that's time spent not on Netflix not on YouTube not on anything else yeah and like that's such a huge value that I don't think that Twitch has managed to convince Amazon of and it's crazy to me it's genuinely mind-boggling well what's continually confused me about that in particular is their inability to I mean they are and maybe this changes sometimes down the road, right? Like, but really only Google's the only one taking the crack at them. They are the sort of predominant live content vertical on the internet, right? Like there's no one even close. And part of that is because it's just so damn expensive to run a live content website. Like it is, server cost right. is insane for something like that. But they have, they've gotten tighter about the other content they've done while simultaneously getting more open right so we've seen like just chatting hot tub streams etc like more and more categories open up where people can do other stuff on twitch that's not just video games as we were talking about earlier but also they've gotten more restrictive like i was kind of surprised to see that now that amazon has full rights to thursday night football that they're not leaning into that more like i saw an, an s fan tweet a few weeks or a few weeks ago towards the beginning of the nfl season and he was Basically just saying, like, I'm not co-streaming Thursday Night Football now, which he was doing before Amazon yeah. had rights to it. And it's like... Uh, that is strange it. to me. I, I think that particularly with that, it's a case with the NFL and more less than Twitch. I'm like, why we can't restream it from what I've heard? But regardless, I, I would think that that'd be something more... They'd be more proactive about pursuing because I think it's the writings on the wall that sort of like React content and like co-streaming is a big thing coming up for a lot of different... A lot of different events. I mean... Yeah. It, Riot's already embraced it completely. The Valorant tournament's very early on in its lifespan. And so I think that there's a huge potential there that obviously isn't being tapped, but I'm not surprised. Well, I, you're a great example of exactly why that, that's working, right? It's because you're inherently passionate about certain esports. You were talking about League before we started recording. I, I see you like share a lot of Smash stuff more broadly, right? Like yeah. you are the shining example of someone who your personal interests exist in the esports titles and the esports main broadcast may not be entertaining, but you simul broadcasting them, co-broadcasting them and, and dubbing over that is because you yourself yeah. are, are an entertainer. You are interesting to your audience. Like I don't, I am, I think you're right that probably the NFL is pretty stiff around those things, but if Amazon makes hard enough argument, it gets done. And I feel like that's, what's not been done is that Amazon's not. Right. Made the hard I, argument. I agree. So that, 
I agree. I think that that's the the interesting missing piece because, I mean, especially things like traditional sports, but also like more broadly, just entertainment as a whole. You know, people aren't. It's almost like the the phenomenon of cord nevers. The people who never had cable, they like just immediately went into like streaming content and VOD, right? Like it's a little bit of that, but now it's like. I think there's a generation of people, especially like late Gen Z, early Gen Alpha, who just like could not care about the streaming websites. Their content consumption is TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, right? And like that's that's it for them. Like maybe they'll watch the hit shows, maybe the cultural shows, things like House of the Dragon, et cetera, that are like super big. You can't just ignore them because it you have to partake, but uh, to be socially relevant or whatever it may be among your circle of friends. But it, it feels like it feels like Twitch is it's just completely missing that opportunity from like a live live perspective. They could do so many partnerships that enable that. Yeah, I think a lot of the community around like things that you enjoy is just becoming for a lot of people less of a in-person interaction and more of an online one. Like being an online community is you see with like Marvel movies, for example, how big like the fandoms is for that. Like I don't see that spoken about too much in real life compared to what I do online. And I think that a lot of hobbies and stuff just sort of lend itself to being a more socially isolated, but not necessarily a negative sense, just more like, more like on, online and by yourself sort of entertainment. That's just sort of the direction. I think a lot of people are headed growing up with technology and stuff that kind of keeps you in your own head. And we were talking about you and I are both, I didn't know this before we, uh, right before we went live, but you and I are both from the Atlanta area. And I've always found it very easier. I've been online my entire life, basically, like, a, you know, computer user from like age four. And I think I always found it way easier to find people who are of my shared interest on the internet than in person. And and gaming was a big part of that for me, like growing up gaming and music. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I am super into dance music and people were not back when I was uh, sort of early, you know, 10, 11, 15, or 12 years old. And now they are, but they weren't back then. I always found it way easier to connect with people over the internet. Yeah, a thousand percent for me. I, I, most people at my school couldn't have cared less about games or at least considered like nerdy to where I just didn't want to express that interest at all at school. And so online was kind of my outlet entirely for all that. Yeah. One thing I want to get to lastly before we open audience questions, because we have a few good ones is that what what's interesting is I think it's actually the same trip you were just talking about the president of Twitch coming to Austin, but uh, some of the original content folks were out here too during that, and I got to meet with them while they were here. And the you know, they have actually, my understanding is tamped down on that, is that they're not investing in original content as much anymore. Like they had done some stuff with OTK, believe that they had done some stuff with Blood as well, like giving him some budget when he was still on Twitch to create sort of shared shows among other streamers. But that hasn't stopped despite Twitch's investment in it, that being a really interesting concept, right? And so something you, that we talked about earlier briefly, but I want to dive into more now, you were a part of the early Twitch Jeopardy portion of Ludwig's show like three years ago. You were a part of Mogul Money Live this year. And I think that there is a whole wall that is only right now just being chiseled out and not fully broken through of live activations like that in person and the shared content that's not just streaming, you know, streaming at the camera and playing or just chatting or whatever, but truly building it up. And we see Blood doing that with Offran and the more recent show with XQC and really sort of activating this stuff. Are, are you inspired by that? Is there things that you're thinking about, like, that you could do even even as a creator? Um, To an extent, 
I, I think that that's not the direction a lot of content is headed and, it, and it's really cool and interesting to see all those ideas come to fruition. And I'm sure it's only going to get bigger and bigger. But I think it also kind of highlights that there is a draw to streamers like myself or like Northern Lion or like uh, very casual just gaming streamers that aren't doing those big events. It's kind of solidified that that there is a place for that kind of content too and that it will always have its own appeal. I think there was a bit of a concern that that like, why would you watch this when this other thing is going on? But uh, uh, the majority of Twitch viewers are second monitor viewers. Like yeah. they're working on something in the background. There's something going on. They are playing a game. They just, you know, it, for whatever reason, they're not 100% of attention isn't on the stream. And for all those events, you pretty much need full attention to, to fully enjoy it. And, and so I think that there's always going to be a place for more casual streams. But those live events, I think, are are certainly a big aspect of Twitch and live creation going forward online. It's just, again, expensive to produce mm -hmm. and, and tough to get off the ground. So you kind of, you're not going to see like smaller streamers totally take advantage of that. Now, there are some that are doing some cool shows. My friend Sam Sandwich, her and her friends do a show that I was on recently that, that does really well for them. That's pretty entertaining. But for the most part, most streamers under a thousand viewers aren't able to produce those kind of projects. And so, you know, they have to find different ways. I mean, when I was that size, I did like, as I mentioned, the Pansies and stuff like that, which was a parody award show that was pretty much like an event. But in the, the day, it was still just me in my room sort of figuring something out. I think there's ways to sort of mix that as a smaller creator to create a big event while not having to go all out in terms of budget. And I think you'll probably see more of that going forward. Well, it's that delicate balance too. And I think this is, I mean, we saw yesterday g4 shut down and there is this there's a lack of intimacy when it, that's really important to twitch as an or the twitch audience and the live streaming audience you know what's what the reason that sort of bedroom created content or like you know other room in your house streaming room created content resonates so broadly is because like you are functionally doing the exact same thing that your viewer could do right like you yeah they're also just sitting in whatever room watching you consuming you and there's a level of like, because it's so bare in its presentation, like they feel connected to you because you're able to just talk to them. There's no sort of television yeah. talking at them, nothing. You're talking with them. You're a part of the conversation and all of it. And I think that... And, and I think that that shows in a lot of streamers that are doing well now too. Like I was watching Kai's like big, you know, 100K sub 24 hour stream and all that was just in his room. Yep. Um, and there was different things happening in the room, but it was still just the POV of the viewer is just you're from the webcam watching what's going on. And I think that there's always going to be a draw to that sort of thing uh, that a big produce content piece can't really capture. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's hard because you want to see people take the shots and do like the more television style of produce stuff because it is interesting and it's different and unique and you want it to be successful. But I think there's a, a fine line to toe between too much of that and not enough of that. Right. Like that's, yeah. I think when you have like a full network, G4 is an yeah. example here that does that, it's kind of tough because a lot of their content, I mean, all their content was that like highly produced television style content. It removes the intimacy, right, of, of, the, yeah. of the interaction. Um, cool. Well, we'll take our first question. This is from Yoxnull. Um, Connor, I've been watching you for a while now since like 2017, 2018, and seeing COVID hit in 2020. How did that affect your work? And do you think it helped or hindered you? Because I know how hard it is to motivate yourself 
during that mo during that time period, but also you had a lot of time to be very creative um, with your work and think of new things. Yeah, I mean, I I would say it was pretty much a total positive for me to be honest. I, I think that you know the viewership on Twitch and YouTube was so much higher, and then I just sort of thrive when I'm inside and not expected to go do things. Uh, to be honest, I think I. <laughs> Sadly, that's just where I do well. And so it kind of just worked out for me pretty well. That was right when Animal Crossing came out, which was a really good stream game for me already. And then it, it blew up for me more so because everybody was inside. It was just good timing all around for me. And it definitely helped a ton. In terms of motivation, again, I think I, I do pretty well when I'm expected to just sort of be inside and stuck to my own sort of ideas about content. And, and so I think it worked out well for me. Thank you for your question. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next question is from Hawk and Miller, who works on live streams at the Washington Post and their gaming vertical launcher. Hawkins great. So Hawken will shoot you an invite to speak if you want to come up and ask it, or I can read it for you. All right. Hello, Jacob. Connor, thanks so much for your time today. I had a question. You know, this is something I'm thinking about as I try to stream more and kind of build my content, but do you feel like it's even possible these days to distinguish yourself from the pack now that I feel like everyone's, you know, trying to be the next Twitch streamer and, and trying to grow, do you feel like there's still opportunity there? Um, yeah, I, I think there's always opportunity. Uh, that being said, I think it's more difficult than it used to be. I think like those live content pieces are kind of what people expect out of like a growing person now, but I don't really think that that's necessary to, to succeed on Twitch. I think that the best advice I can give is to build up your own community and viewers the best way you can without it being too like in their face. Like for me growing on Twitch, it was making sure people just, just follow and are in the chat. And then, you know, if they want to join my discord, they can, or they can get notified and I'm on there from time to time building up a Twitter and YouTube, stuff like that is important just slowly, but surely because eventually people just get reminded about you and start coming back. Um, and I, I think, if I was to be growing on Twitch now, you know, I definitely primarily focus on making sure I'm spread out between other platforms, but also just what I did growing as variety on Twitch was just being in different game directories that I think people might show up in. Like, for example, like I don't think many people are playing like Pokemon Unite, which is a pretty it's small Pokemon League of Legends like game. But when there's a new character out, maybe, you know, some people are checking that directory a bit more than they were before. And so if you're streaming in there and you're one of the top five, then there's a good chance at least somebody new comes to your stream and stuff like that. And so you always just got to think about what can get one more person or two more people in. And as long as you're having, I think, a good enough stream that you're confident enough in that hopefully someone's first impression of your content is good, then ideally you're keeping people coming back and building up more people. But again, it's, it's not easy to grow on these sites now, nor has it ever been. But I think especially now that it's more diluted in terms of how many people are there. Yeah, extremely, extremely saturated. Very cognizant of that, too. The next question is from Lambert Blinn. This kind of actually follows up quite nicely on Hawkins' question, which is, how has the move from streaming as a hobby to a full-time career been mentally? And do you see a future as a brand and or business? And I my follow-up would be that, to that too is have you considered joining sort of one of these content groups of people similar especially because you live in Austin similar to like OTK etc because I think part of their offering right is being able to run a portion of your business and provide shared services among one another that kind of help with that so I'll, I'll add to their question a little bit yeah I think I've primarily avoided sort of joining groups like that because I don't like being 
on camera very much. I like keeping myself as separate as I can for the most part. I'm just a little bit more un uncomfortable just on camera and doing things physically that it, it just sort of takes me out of it or just sitting behind my computer screen, no face cam. Now, that being said, I think it's certain, I'm not closed off to the door of like joining a content group if it felt like the right fit for me. But right now it's, it's never really been a priority unless it seemed like it was, it was the right fit. Now to answer Lambert's question, I think the transition to it becoming a job is still something that I'm sort of struggling and dealing with. I think it makes me, it's not that I don't like streaming as much or like what I do. I certainly still have that passion. It's just a lot harder to find it sometimes when it feels like an obligation or like I'm making a mistake if I don't stream or don't do this or that. That definitely adds an anxiety factor to something that used to just be a total escape and fun thing for me. And that only really became a thing, I would say, in like the past year and a half or so. And I, I'd it definitely been making me enough money for about a year prior to that before I started to feel that way. And it's still something I'm figuring out and talk to other people about. And it's not really something that there's a solution or answer to, it seems. Everybody deals with it and has different struggles with it. But it's, I don't know, it's, it's tough to kind of be in the dream job position and at a young age and wonder what's next or what the right move is. I, I think I'd, I'd like to eventually start helping and consulting on, you know, content ideas and stuff for others, potentially, because uh, I feel like I'm pretty good at giving ideas. Execution on my own end is where I struggle a bit. But, but for, for the most part, I, I feel like, you know, that there's a future in this space for me, regardless of if I'm always having to be live all the time. I can't really see myself doing anything else not in this space. It's just where most of my interests lie. Good answer. Yeah. And next question is from Noi, who's already been uh, promoted to speak. So go ahead and unmute and ask your question for Connor. Right. Um, so basically what you just answered was pretty similar. But my question is, have you like as a neurodivergent person struggled with the motivation to do things like even when they were fun to do, like creating content or anything else that's fun or struggled with like the work aspects, like advertising your content? And if so, how do you deal with that? Hey, it's a good question that I wish I had the answer to because I absolutely do struggle with all that still. It's, it's not easy to find motivation for things that I even want to do sometimes. You know, you just got to find healthy, healthy options to help get you in the right mindset, whether it's going outside or reading. I think for a lot of streamers that I've spoken to, like reading and trying to like be outside and just read a book is pretty much the biggest separation from streamer brain that you can get where your head is always a million miles all over the place. Think about chat, Twitter, perception, how this is going out, this number is, it definitely screws to your head. So Reading is, I think, the best sort of separation from that kind of content brain from most people that I've spoken to. Um, that, now, getting myself in that spot to even read in the first place is not easy, which is a whole other issue. But, you know, th there are solutions and things that you find that help. It's just making those things a habit that I think are the biggest struggle for people like me and you. But I think most people are already aware of that and deal with that in their own way. I am not personally OCD, but I am ADHD pretty aggressively and it's definitely impacted my career. So I can relate to at least a little bit of that. But yeah, I, I will say to the to the point more broadly, you finding something that disconnect. I find parts personally, and I'm curious if you do too. I am very perfectionist in my nature and the it's hard for me to find other things that especially whether you know like I play instruments I play piano and guitar and used to sing as well and it's hard for me to find something where like that drive I have for my content to be perfect to everything to be buttoned up I find that spilling over into my hobbies the things that are my disconnects from from my work do you do you struggle with some of that as well 
Yeah, uh, for sure. And I definitely think that a big factor in that too is that my hobby is part of my job. Like I like video games that like when I'm playing a game, it's like, oh, well, I could probably be streaming this or I could have made content out of this. And, and that, that really screws with you, I think, once your hobby becomes your job. Yeah, it's killed. That, that particular like part of me has killed my ability to play single player games. It like just shot yeah. me. Like uh, multiplayer games are, I want that, like I have that same drive to be really good at everything. And it makes like League and Valorant and TFT like super, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but like when it, when it becomes a part of that, like, oh, I got to be really good at this thing because I'm really good at something else. And, and it's like, yeah. I just wish I could be like a normal person sometimes and just be like, it's okay. I don't have to be the best at this. Like I can just enjoy it without. Yeah, being I really totally understand it. that. So, our last audience questions for the night is from Tan Man. And they shot my team shot them an invite, but I haven't seen it, so we'll give them a little bit. And then, if not, I know Tan Man. We'll. It's uh, a long time viewer, man. Yeah, well, I'll read out the question because they typed it for us. If not, but if they're here, come ask your question to Connor. This is something that I've been thinking oh, about for a while because I don't necessarily think I ever want to become like a creator as a career or anything, but I do think I would want to maybe create like a video or two just for my own personal thing because I think it would be fun to do. But the thing that I struggled with, which is my question, is do you ever feel overwhelmed by the amount of great media that exists, such as games, films, or streams, or anything like that, that you personally enjoy and are inspired by that make you that makes you feel like anything you'd want to create would be unoriginal because of how much other great stuff exists and that all of the, all of the inspirations that you have make may create you, may force you to create something that would be unoriginal as a result or make it feel inadequate based compared to all those things that you're inspired by. Yeah, I think I can be pretty comparative of my content to others pretty often. I wouldn't say I'm demotivated by the fact that there's good content out there because it, I've seen that people obviously enjoy what I do, so I must be doing something right. Now, that being said, in terms of my own self sort of perception of things, it's it's never really easy, nor does it get any easier to motivate myself or to feel confident in it. It's kind of just something that you need to accept and to separate your mind from that anything you're doing creatively is something that only you can really do or create and someone out there probably is going to enjoy it or at least get something out of it or you can hope so. And to me, I think that's enough to, to try. Because it, you never know what, what someone could get out of something that you make, be it makes their day better or helps in any other way. So that's kind of the way I look at it or try to, at least. Because for me, when I was, you know, in, a, in school or in a pretty bad spot, watching other people's content was always a very big escape and help for me, whether they really realized it or not. And so that's kind of something I try to keep in mind whenever I'm making things. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot, too. It's... um it's always a little weird to me, even despite my own personal successes, when somebody comes up and they're like, oh, you know, thank you for everything you do. Like, you've really inspired me to do something else. And it's just like, but I'm nowhere near like where I want to be. Right. It's like that, like constant, I think young people, successful young people, right. I'm, I'm about to be 26 and you're 23. Like we, imposter syndrome is really, really hard when you're successfully young. Right. It's that like constant, nothing's ever good enough for us. Right. Like that's that's what it feels like. And and uh, I don't think most people understand what that feels like, but it's very much one of those like micro celebrity issues to deal with, I think. Yeah, for sure. That micro celebrity sort of issues are it kind of gets it's said in that way. But honestly, I think they're in a lot of ways more difficult or as difficult or more difficult than some like major celebrity issues, because in a day like a 
streamer like myself or others, we're in charge of our own perception and how we do things. Like sure you can get publicists or people that can help, but to get where you are as a streamer and stuff, you have to have that knowledge of social media. You have to be in touch with your audience. You have to do this, this, or that, that uh, a lot of mainstream celebrities can, I feel separate from a bit more easily to an extent because it's not expected of them to have to manage all that. Whereas for us, it is something that is entirely in our hands. Yeah, I think just to end on that note, because I think this is a really interesting discussion. I like where we've kind of gone. Thank you, listener questions, because you've taken us in a place that I think is really interesting is, you know, I I felt this when, you know, I worked at ESPN for almost five years and there's a level of quality of content that comes associated with being at a company like that. And like, so stepping out on my own, doing it independently, it's it's been like this challenge of like, you know, I, I work with some really talented people. I've hired some really talented people around me, but nonetheless, it's if something's not immediately successful, like, does that mean that I'm a, a failure? Because it's like that, crank, you know, the knob has already been cranked up. The expectation from people for out of my content has been cranked up. And I think that that's like the constant. It, it's something that I, I really, and he was on the show before he announced off brand. It's something I'd really love to pick like blood's brain on in a public forum because it's, you know, I'm sure not everything with off brand is going to be perfect, but I, and that, but everybody expects everything from Ludwig to be perfect because he's gotten to where he is now because he's good at it, right? <laughs> he's consistent at it. There's this consistent level of quality. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. But thank you all for all the fantastic listener questions. Uh, those were all really good and really compelling. I think sparked both of our brains in a lot of different ways. So thank you. We're going to end the episode there, though. Actually, you know what? My staff is asking me one more thing. So we'll we'll hit here. Connor, do you actually eat pants? No, it's just for like brand recognition. <laughs> Where did that come from? What is what is the name? It came from the show iCarly. They tell the teacher that he eats pants on like the whiteboard. And <laughs> when I was thinking of a name that I could remember easily, that was what came to mind. That's great. And so that's what I went with. Yeah, yeah it definitely stood out. I, I love the joke. I, when I was doing like research for this too, to kind of see all the like previous interviews, just yeah. You had done. I saw. I saw the JHB appearance that you did, where he's like, "Connor, Connor eats <laughs> pants exposed. He doesn't actually eat pants." Like, I love JHB's show. Uh, he's so, so funny. He's so f- funny. Like, I think he's the perfect example of someone who's found a niche. Just being like, yeah, I, I like. I I watch some of his sh- uh, shows that they do. Just finding like a niche of just being like super like awkward and relatable in a way that I think a lot of people on the internet are. It's, it's great. So yeah, I I still don't know if it's, if it's an art of his or if he's genuinely just so uncomfortable doing what he's doing. And I think that's part of what makes it awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I think he's, he's one of those people like lets his guard down and socially, but I think the, the being the interviewer host is like a whole, that's a whole different art form in itself. If you're not used to it, if you're not yeah. trained by it and have good mentors, it's tough. So, but no, that, that was a, it was a good interview to watch. I thought it was funny. So I had to ask. That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. While you're there, you can also find more episodes like our interviews with Ludwig Ogren, Atrioc, and others. Special thanks to Prem Dhatamkara and Sammy Daig for their help on this episode. We'll see you on Friday.